Welcome to the Free to Be More podcast by the Enoch Pratt Free Library. I'm your host, Megan McCorkle. This podcast series features conversations with leaders and innovators having a positive impact in our city. Let's get started. Your journey starts here. The coronavirus has changed the way we connect and communicate, and it's had a huge impact on the people who try to help our community. One of those people trying to make a difference, Dr. Judy Postmas, the new dean of the University of Maryland School of Social Work. Dr. Postmas, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. It's my pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. So for people who don't know you, I know you're relatively new to Baltimore. Can you tell us a little bit about your background? Thanks. I am. So again, my name is Judy Postmas. I'm the new dean at the School of Social Work at the University of Maryland here in Baltimore. I am originally from Miami, Florida, and uh, have traveled and lived in other parts of the country, including Albany, New York, Lawrence, Kansas, and my last place was in New Jersey at Rutgers University for 14 years before coming here. You are the Dean of the School of Social Work now here at Maryland. Um, When did you start that job? And I know you moved here, I mean, just during the pandemic. So what has that experience been like? Yeah, so it was an interesting process. So I started the application where I sub- and I had been talking to the search firm and I submitted my materials probably around this time last year, maybe November last year, mm-hmm. and went through some interviewing process. I had my second interview was a campus visit, and that was the end of February. <laughs> and then the pandemic came along. <laughs> so I got the position officially signed on the dotted line in April. I started the position July 1. I was here temporarily in an Airbnb for a month in July and then went back to New Jersey to pack up my house because it had sold and I found a house here to live in Baltimore Mm -hmm. and officially moved at the end of August here. Wow, that's a lot more than most people have been able to do in this day and age during the pandemic. Um, I want to talk just about your background. How did you wind up getting into social work? I know your initial interest when you were in school was pre-med and then you switched. What was it about social work that drew you in? So I was pre-med and then um, ended up with a degree in nutrition um, from Miami because that's, again, I'm from Miami. And so my undergrad degree was from there. Uh, Florida International University, to be exact. And I had started working, volunteering, and then got a job right after getting my degree with families and at-risk youth in Liberty City, which is a community in Miami that is very similar to West Baltimore in the sense that is primarily African-American, primarily low-income housing, a lot of challenges, a lot of resiliency, but also a great deal of challenges. And I started working with those families as a volunteer and then eventually as a full-time staff person. And a few years in, I thought, maybe I should get a degree to know what I'm doing with these (laughs) families and with these youth. And so that's what led me to get into doing social work. So I was doing social work services before I actually had a degree in it. So that helped me by getting the master's in social work in Miami. What was it about Baltimore that made you want to come here? I think the big thing was it did remind me of my time when I was in Miami. So I look back into the time I worked with families in Liberty City as some of my most informative and helpful areas of my life. I was in my 20s. I was young. It was during the time in Miami where there were race riots because of being mistreated by law enforcement, African-Americans being mistreated and killed by law enforcement. 
I don't know if any of this is sounding familiar to you, but of course, <laughs> this has been an ongoing problem for decades and hundreds of years, actually. So I saw Baltimore as bringing me back to my roots. I saw the University of Maryland as a wonderful place with a strong presence in the community and a commitment to the community. And I saw the school as one who was fully engaged with the community through some of our Promise Heights works and our work with Swacos in the schools and the positive school centers and saw just some real opportunity for joining a great group of faculty and staff as well as community members to can we make a difference through social work and in the community of Baltimore. You talked a little bit about the social justice movement sort of back then in Miami, and certainly we saw something very like that this summer across the entire nation. What role does social work play in a social justice movement? So one of the founding principles of the social work profession is to work with the oppressed and to be with those whose justice is not there. So whether it's based on racial justice or economic justice or social justice, you know, that's who we are as a profession is to join with and partner with others to make their lives, their communities, their their families better. And so social workers play a huge role, both from uh, helping individuals who are struggling whether it's struggling with poverty, struggling with housing or mental illness or substance abuse or whatever the individual, you know, depression and other other challenges, but as well as all the way on up to macro issues of working with communities and doing community organizing and really improving policies and services and the people who are interacting with communities and individuals and families. So social work does it all. And so we also are trained and we train social workers to think about you have this person in front of you with a problem, but that person by themselves, it's not just their problem. That that problem became because of themselves as an individual, their families, their communities, the society, you know, it just keeps going out. And so we're trained to look at the bigger picture, the environmental picture, to know that it's it's everything and all in between. And so that's why social work is huge when it comes to really addressing various injustices that are around in our lives. You've been in this career for a long time. Is there a frustration with, over the years, how far we haven't come? And what are some of the things, do you think, as a society where we have come a little bit further? Yeah, I think that clearly it's a frustration with how far we haven't come, right? I mean, the racial injustice that we see every day, you know, I've been describing it as a dual pandemic that we're facing. You know, Mm -hmm. there's the COVID pandemic, which is very short term. It just happened about a year ago. And but the racial pandemic has been happening for 400 years. Right. So sometimes it's the frustration is there about the lack of progress and how the things that I see in Baltimore, the same things I saw when I was working in Miami back in the 80s. So in that way, it's frustrating. But I also see more effort on the part of people speaking out. I see, you know, the movements and the protesting that's been happening I think have been really good for our country to come to terms and to have frank conversations with each other. And it's not just the frank conversations with people that you that need to have those conversations, but those kind of conversations are even happening in families that might not have happened before. Others might have thought, well, that's a their problem, not an our problem. And I'm I'm hopeful, I'm hopeful that these conversations, these challenging each other, the understanding what it means to be an anti-racist organization what it means to be an individual who espouses anti-racist beliefs, what microaggressions mean and how do we address that? And what do we do when we see family members or loved ones or 
or coworkers saying things that, you know, and challenging them. I think that that's where my hope lies, that more and more of these conversations are happening and less of it is in the realm of we've already solved this problem. Can't we move on from here? Because clearly we have not solved the problem of racism and we definitely need to be talking about it. Sure. And I don't even think, you know, the word microaggressions in the past two years, you've heard it more and more, but, you know, five, six, seven years ago, people didn't really know what that term meant, right? Right, right. So the fact that we that people understand what that term is now, mm-hmm. to me, is a hopefulness of, okay, now we're having these conversations. We're taking it to a, a deeper level. It's not, you know, being anti-racist doesn't mean I don't wear a white cape and a hat and do horrible things. Uh-huh. <laughs> it's yeah. way more than that, right? And so that's where I think the protests and the movement and the Black Lives Movement has really brought us is to really forcing us to face ourselves and our own our own issues, having, you know, to dealing with it within ourselves and then dealing with it with those who are around us and then trying to make a difference. You touched on this a little bit about the pandemic really disproportionately affecting communities of color and low-income neighborhoods. What kind of impact are you and your students seeing on those communities here in Baltimore? Well, I mean, this is this is an example of the racism that has permeated our, our communities. And that is that we've known about health disparities in low-income African-American communities around any health issue, from high blood pressure to diabetes to, I mean, we can keep going down this list, and that there's been historically, again, rightfully so, a distrust of African-American communities of medical institutions because of their, how they've been treated and how they've been used and how they have not been treated. And I mean, so historically that's ingrained into a culture that has been abused basically. And so now comes along this huge pandemic where the experts are telling us what to do and it's hard to believe them. Mm-hmm. It's hard to to really do that. And on top of all that, I'm also a group that's at risk because the health disparity was already there before the pandemic hit. And so now I'm in a group where I am more at risk just because of the color of my skin mm-hmm. for getting COVID and having horrible outcomes as a result of getting it. So we know it's disproportionately affecting these communities. We know that more African-Americans are getting infected with COVID at higher rates than other groups. We know that they're dying at higher rates than other groups. And so I think that there's a need for the medical systems to figure out how best to work with these communities and really address those health disparities that have been around for so many generations. One of the things that is coming up, thankfully, is a vaccine. But as you mentioned, there is some worry that communities of color, because of that history, will be reticent to take a vaccine. What roles do you feel like social workers play in dispelling some of those untruths about the healthcare field and what could happen to someone taking a vaccine like that? Yeah. I've heard about the lack of trust, especially around the vaccinations, as we've even in our own school had conversations about, you know, who's going to be taking it and who wants to get it. And and there's huge distrust that is largely along um, racial lines. And I understand it because why would you trust a system with a remedy when they have mistreated you and families and generations of your family, you know, for years? Mm-hmm. So it is, I think the role that social workers can play is one of working closely with communities 
demonstrating the safety of vaccinations, which of course we don't know that yet until people start getting vaccinated, right? Sure. So, yep. I mean, there's going to be some watching and seeing what happens. And then once we see that, yes, it is safe and yes, it does work, and then really spending time with information campaigns, joining with um, communities to go, how can we help you disseminate this information and get the vaccines in place? you know, working with our, you know, from the school's perspective, some of our community-based programs of how can we use our partnerships with communities to help them understand if it is comes out to be true. Because again, this is, this is all new for all of us, right? Mm -hmm. But to really say if, if these vaccines are trustworthy or not, I think it was, I think I just read in the news that three former presidents have all agreed to be vaccinated. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's huge. I think to me, that's a huge step in the right direction of people stepping up, people of influence, people that others um, look up to, like President, former President uh, Barack Obama, and mm -hmm. to say, okay, if he's willing to do it, maybe it's not, maybe I can do it too. So there's going to be a lot of information that needs to be disseminated. But I think listening to the communities helping them figure out what's the best way to get this information out, what's the best way to help people get vaccinated is going to be our best bet. Get your high school diploma online on your own time. The Pratt Library is now accepting applications for career online high school. Scholarships will be awarded to students 19 and older to help them graduate online. No internet? No problem. The Pratt will loan you a tablet while you're a student. Apply today at prattlibrary.org. You are the dean of the School of Social Work, um, so you are really training the social workers of tomorrow. A lot of that work is face-to-face -face work. So mm. how has the pandemic really challenged you and your students? Yeah, it's been, it's been interesting. So we talk about, we have two different types of learning in our um, school. We have what we call the didactic or the typical classroom learning. And then we have the experiential, or we call them field placements or internships, where students work two to three days a week in an organization, in some setting, in a community, in a school, somewhere where they're getting some in-person experience and working as a social worker. So when the pandemic came, the school, before I got there, and then since I've been there, we have shifted to all the didactic or classroom learning has become remote. So mm -hmm. that we are doing it like lots of other people who are doing it using Zoom, using WebEx, using the, you know, the remote learning and teaching to make that happen. The, the experiential, of course, has been a little more difficult. So some students, I think about 50, 60 percent of our students are actually going into agencies and working face to face with clients still and with individuals, families and communities. Some of our students have gone into schools that have opened. And then others, the rest that aren't in face-to-face -face situations, some of them are working in organizations that have used more telehealth and remote interventions. So if a school is remote, for example, and the, the student is working as a social worker intern in the school, they can participate remotely with those students and with those families. So, so it just depends on which organization they're placed in. You know, we're, we're in hundreds of placements all around the state of Maryland. And, you know, we work closely with the agencies to make sure that the students are safe, our students are safe, and that what's the best way for them to get experience, whether in person or remotely. I know one of the places where social workers are, social work interns, are the Enoch Pratt Free Libraries. When mm -hmm. you are looking at placement, what types of organizations are you looking for where maybe people don't expect to find a social worker? 
Right. So traditionally, a social work student would go into an organization that already has social workers, they're already licensed, they already have experience, and they become what we call the field instructor or the supervisor or the student to help train them, teach them how to do the work. So that's where a lot of our placements are. But in recent years, the school, and I'm so happy that they're doing this, has been looking at and working with places where it might not be your typical social work setting, like a library, where you would not expect to find social workers and where historically you might even say, why would social workers even need to be in a library? But what librarians have found, especially in the age of technology, is that individuals who don't have either access to or the money to have internet access and computers, that they need help to find those places. And oftentimes the free, and the best way to go and they're free, are to go to the libraries. And mm -hmm. so what libraries were faced with were individuals who, while they could help them with the computers and doing things, they also found them to have a lot of other problems. Like perhaps there's mental health. Maybe they were having housing instability. Maybe there was some substance abuse issues going on or other, whatever the issues were that sometimes people were coming into the library needing help for themselves or for others. And librarians who aren't trained to know what resources are available from a social service perspective were struggling. So one of the programs that the school developed was to basically hire, that we would hire a social worker to be the field instructor who's working with the libraries so that students could be, quote unquote, supervised by a social worker and get the appropriate education training but be placed in a setting like a library where they can do the work that social workers do with the individuals who come to use the library services and support the libraries in their efforts of reaching their consumers. So it's a unique model. It is one that we're trying to replicate. A lot of it is you know, predicated on funding, right? You have to hire a full-time field instructor to do this kind of work to take on 8 to 10 to 12 students. And so rely a lot on community members and other organizations to support that kind of work to say, well, we do need a social worker in the library, for example. Yeah. So that's, it's an exciting program. And I'm really happy that this school does that. Yeah. And I would think one of the integral things too, is to find organizations that are trusted by the community because the profession of social work, I would think just requires people to have so much trust in you. Mm. Yeah. So trust is a big thing. And, I, and one of the things, one of the first things we teach our students is how to engage with others. And that engagement means how do you build someone's trust in you? And so you have to you know, be consistent. You have to be honest. You have to be genuine. You have to show concern. You have to you know, have an understanding of the situation. You have to listen. You have to all those good tools that social workers use in order to engage with someone. And so that's the training that we provide of how do you engage with someone? Because if you're going to get them to tell you about their deepest, darkest secrets or their problems or the challenges that they're facing, they're going to have to trust you to do that. And so I think that especially if you're in a setting like a library and not in a, so if somebody has a mental health issue and they go to a mental health organization, you know, they're going there because that's what they want help for. Mm -hmm. And so they're more willing to talk about it. But if you're in a setting like a library or a community or something, it is, it's a different way of how do you connect with people? Um, and then you have to be engaging and open. I mean, you literally as a student, as a social worker, have to open yourself up to being honest and genuine and saying, I'm here to help whatever I can do. Mm -hmm. And that whatever, you know, that I follow through with everything I say I'm going to do. Do you have a worry that people who really need the help of a social worker that may find them in a library or a non-traditional setting 
don't have that access now and what that could mean for people in the community to not be able to access that resource because of the pandemic. Oh, yes. I, I worry about it all the time. And I worry about people not having access to the resource because of the libraries. I just worry in general about mm-hmm. how much mental health is spiking, depression, mm-hmm. anxiety, suicide because of the pandemic, people living alone, people who might not feel safe to go see a doctor or see a social worker in a setting or for whatever reason. I think that this pandemic has been challenging for all of us. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that even with the vaccination that it might protect us physically but I still think we need to deal with the emotional and, and well-being of our communities. And I think that might be a little longer term as we think about recovery from this pandemic. Sure. That gets right into my next question. I think a lot of people look at medical doctors right now as the front lines in the fight against COVID. But do you feel like social workers maybe are the front lines of the recovery? Because a lot of people have experienced a lot of trauma, whether that be losing someone in their family or losing their job. The repercussions of this are not short-term. Right. Yes. So I do think that social workers will be on the front line. I think that they're already on the front line Mm -hmm. dealing with the emotional side of things, but also even the connecting individuals who lost their job, for example, that maybe they need to file for unemployment, or maybe they need to go get TANF and get some temporary support. Maybe they need to get, traditionally it was called food stamps, it's now called SNAP, or maybe they just need help, you know, whatever the help is. Maybe they need to figure out where the food bank is and I can get some free food. I mean, there's any, and social workers, that's one of the ways that we're trained is to help connect people to resources. So I think that that's going to be crucial right now, as well as in the future. I think we were talking as deans around the university this past week, you know, in anticipation, as we see in the news, that the COVID rates starting to go up and Mm -hmm. up and up, and that the hospitals are now preparing for numbers to go up and up and up as they have been. And my response to the conversation was, what can social workers do to help? Because not only help the clients and those who are experiencing COVID, but even the frontline workers who are also struggling with watching people die in their care, watching families not be able to be near. So we're starting to see some mental health challenges that our first responders are experiencing. So I think the social worker plays a huge role, both during the pandemic as well as after the physical side of things perhaps are done, um, that I think this is going to be a long process for folks to really come back to some sense of normalcy. Need a book, audiobook, hotspot, or more? Sidewalk service is now available at 14 Enoch Pratt Free Library locations. Pick up your materials contact-free. Remote printing is also available on-site. Make an appointment today at prattlibrary.org. Has it changed any of the curriculum or the way you guys are teaching classes um, sort of prepare students for what they may see when they become a full-fledged social worker and are in the field because there are new challenges or at least compounded amount of challenges? It's a really good question. And I think it's one, I know that we had started already thinking about how the methods in which we deliver the curriculum Historically, most of the methods of the University of Maryland and our school of social work had focused on um, in-person coming to class, coming to downtown Baltimore or to Shady Grove Mm -hmm. and getting in-person classes. And clearly the pandemic has moved us to a more remote and online format. Um, And so we're looking at continuing, how do we shift our method of delivery of the curriculum? We've already started talking about even some of what we call our practice classes, which are the classes that help you in practice. 
mm-hmm. um, um, that w- we think about how are we going to prepare our students to do telehealth? How are we going to prepare them to do counseling via computer, via remotely, and not necessarily face-to-face? Mm-hmm. But I think that even the how do we assess for mental health of anybody we're working with might also be um, an area that we need to focus on as a school so that social workers who go out, no matter where they are, to be aware of the signs and symptoms that others might, you know, it might be a colleague or a friend who works in a hospital Mm -hmm. and they're not seeing them as a social worker per se, but that they might have an opportunity to spot somebody has is struggling with anxiety or depression and doesn't know how to say it or Mm -hmm. get help for it. So I think that there might be some training and support for the social workers to be able to help assess and spot it and help direct people to get the services that they need. One of the other, I think, interesting curriculum changes that's happened since you're the dean is a new course for students that's a required course on structural oppression. Why did you feel like that was so important? So that was something the faculty had been working on for a few years now, and I was really happy that they rolled it out. So social work has always prided itself on addressing racial injustice historically as a field. But in some ways, I think we got too comfortable. Mm-hmm. And that we thought we're good at this. And so I think that then there was some hard conversations after 2015 and Freddie Gray about what are we teaching our students and each other. And so that was when the idea of the course started percolating um, to really, instead of thinking of let's infuse this information throughout all of our curriculum, we really need to pay some special attention to this particular topic in a course that's required for all of our students. Mm-hmm. And so that was how the course was born. We also had, we launched, so we had been piloting or they had been piloting the course on um, the last year or so. And this year was the first year that rolled out to everybody who was required. We also rolled out a prerequisite course over the summer that was online and asynchronous, meaning they did it on their own. And it was uh, looking at structural oppression specifically in Baltimore. Um, and looking at some of understanding what happens in this city, because so many of our students are from the area, from the surrounding areas, and the school is located in the area, so in the community. So I think that um, between those two courses, I think we're really hopefully setting up our students to think about what is structural oppression, how to, how to identify it within oneself, how do I deal with it when you see it, and how to address it, and how to stand up against, against it, and to make a difference. Um, and that, that's the goal of the courses. Sure. I think it's so fascinating to do that in Baltimore because there is such a history with redlining and policies that were so oppressive. And then you can really see exactly how that's played out even to this day. So what's been the reaction from students as they take that course? It's been pretty favorable so far. Students have really appreciated the course and what they're getting from it. I mean, of course, the course hasn't ended this semester. It was mandatory this first semester. So we're in the next couple of weeks. I'm sure we'll start getting the evaluations to see what the students are saying. But from what I can gather from faculty and from students that this has been really a helpful course to help them address their own issues and figure out how they can make a difference and how they can stand up against racial injustice and really just help them broaden their understanding of the subject. One of your other goals within the School of Social Work is increasing diversity within the student body. Why do you feel like that's so important as you're putting new social workers out there every year? 
So one of my goals is not just the student body, it's also the faculty and staff. I want us to be an anti-racist organization. I want us to be an organization or a school that embraces diversity, equity, and inclusion. And I think that it's important because, especially for us here in Baltimore, because of the community that surrounds us and who we'll be working with. And so it's important for us to ensure that we have individuals who come from the community to be able to go back into the community and be a part of the change that the community wants to make and that needs to happen. So I think that it's important for, it kind of goes back to the conversation we had earlier about trust. It's important for the community to trust when workers are coming in to help make a difference. Sometimes part of that trust includes to look the same. Yeah. And part of that trust means, you know, that it's not just white individuals coming in to quote unquote rescue and save black individuals. I think it's, we've moved past that as a country and it is, it is more of a partnership. That doesn't mean to say you can't cross cultures and cross and have different ethnicities working together, but it does make a huge difference that there needs to be some level of partnership and engagement and equity when it comes to how we look and um, interact with one another so that we have black social workers, Latinx social workers, white social workers, Mm -hmm. South Asian social workers. I mean, we need social workers of every ethnicity and background to be able to provide support for that particular community as well as other communities, as well as our student body, our faculty body, our staff body, to really be an inclusive community. Sure. It makes sense. We talk about that in literature all the time, especially, you know, children's books. They need to see themselves reflected in literature. It's really the same thing. If you're trying to trust somebody, you want to see a reflection of that. And it's just so understandable. As someone coming in with fresh eyes, what do you feel like the critical needs are for Baltimore right now? And how do you feel like the School of Social Work really plays a part? Well, the immediate critical need is to get through this pandemic, right? It's to get our children back in schools. It's to get our communities back to functioning, people back to work, people being able to survive financially, emotionally. I mean, that's the biggest priority. I think then as we move from that, I think continuing to address racial, economic, and social justice, I think looking at it, it not just from a racial perspective, but even from the lens of what are we doing about homelessness and housing? And what are we doing about the poverty that is prevalent? Um, and what are we doing to support grassroots organizations that are trying to make a difference? So I think that there's a lot of work to be done, but primarily focusing on, okay, this pandemic is going to create a bunch of things <laughs> that mm-hmm. we need to address and, and a lot of healing, which plays along with when you're, when you're addressing racial, economic, and social justice there still is a lot of healing that has to happen. This mm-hmm. country in particular, we've been pitted against each other, even as citizens. Yep. And there's healing that has to happen. Mm-hmm. It has to, I mean, I struggle with it within my own family as well and different political views. And that healing must be there, that we can't distrust each other because that is, first of all, it's not very American. And second of all, that's no way to really address problems. You have to be able to work with one another. And if I don't trust you because I think you voted for a particular person or not, or that, you know, I'm going to believe some conspiracy theory about things that did or didn't happen, it just makes it really hard to make any forward movement. And if we're really going to be serious about addressing any of these challenges in our communities, we're going to have to get back to trusting each other and being respectful and kind towards one another. Mm-hmm. What gives you hope as we move into the future? Young people. 
I see I'm hopeful for young people who have the energy and desire and their eyes are wide open. And I am excited about the possibility of how they can continue to move the torch forward, move the line forward of really addressing the injustices that are in our community. I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful that I'm seeing more people wanting to be active and to take a stance. I'm hopeful, you know, even things like addressing environmental justice, um, which is also tied in with racial and social and economic justice, right? It's all, they are also interrelated. Mm -hmm. um, that um, I'm thrilled by young individuals standing up and saying, this isn't right, we need to do something, and I'm willing to do, to make a difference. I think that's where my hope lies. And my hope is that the young people will partner with not-so-young people, <laughs> to say, we've been doing this for a while. Let's work with you and give us those new ideas. And I'm open to those new ideas. And here, let me, let me share with you my own skills and abilities and, and background and, and, you know, experiences and that together we can make a difference. But yeah, that's where the, that's where my hope lies. Mm -hmm. Dr. Judy Postmas, welcome to Baltimore. And thank, <laughs> thank, you. <laughs> thank you so much for being our guest. Thank you so much. Get the latest bestsellers for free at The Pratt. Check out the new PrattLibrary.org to find out what's new at the library. Available via ebook or audiobook online, or pick up a copy at a Pratt Sidewalk Service location. See the hottest titles at PrattLibrary.org. I'm Megan McCorkle, and you've been listening to the Free to Be More podcast by the Enoch Pratt Free Library. You can follow The Pratt on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. If you haven't yet, go to Apple Podcasts and subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. Join me next month for another free-to-be-more conversation. Thanks for listening.